whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report military segment. This is Dr. Lee for America. And we are here today to expose the gargantuan fraud perpetrated on the American people and the continued hoodwinking of the American people with the Biden administration's recent announcement of, oh, we're backing off of the COVID-19 mandates as if they are doing some magnanimous gesture for the American public, when in fact it serves their more nefarious purposes. And you're going to hear more about that from three experienced military officers. Colonel Tom Remfer, retired U.S. Air Force pilot, who has actually experienced the government malfeasance and fraud perpetrated on service members during the anthrax mandates, which was also an investigational vaccine that caused harm and damage and took many years to rectify. He'll tell you about that. And Lieutenant Colonel John Cheek, who is currently serving as an Army strategist, and Colonel retired Jim Zitlow, who had more than 30 years in the military, U.S. Air Force as a pilot, graduate of the Air Force Academy, stellar service record, and now is a 20-year, more than 20-year veteran of United Airlines as a commercial pilot. He is a co-plaintiff on the United Airlines lawsuit that the pilots are bringing for the damages as a result of the COVID shots. And more interestingly, in one sense, related to today's discussion, Colonel Zitlow is, has a background as a strategic pandemic planner and actually has had significant leadership roles in that in the past. He'll tell you more about that. And all of our military people Colonel Remfer and Colonel Sheik have been serving on the Military Advisory Council for Truth to Health Foundation since we started that more than a, a year and a half ago. They are volunteers with us. All of our service members are speaking as private citizens today. They are not speaking as representatives of the Department of Defense or any branch of the military. I think it's going to be fairly obvious by what they present that they are not representing the Department of Defense since we see the way in which the Department of Defense has been deceptive with the American people and with service members. 
And we'll talk more about that today, too. So welcome to our team. We are grateful for your service. And we are grateful to have you on the show to help the American people understand your unique perspectives on what the Department of Defense, the Biden administration in particular, have been doing during the COVID pandemic that is is truly a fraud, a very damaging fraud on the American people and their continued deception in the way they position these media announcements. So thank you all for being here today. And we look forward to your truth that you're sharing with the public. Colonel Remfer, why don't we start with you because you have the most uh, longevity in experience with what the Department of Defense has done on unlawful vaccine mandates going back to anthrax. And you were one of the lead plaintiffs on the anthrax lawsuit. So take it away and and talk to us about what's really going on with backing off the COVID mandates and how is that serving their purposes more so than the American people? Thanks, Dr. Lee. Yeah, I think the historical lens is extremely important as uh, America reflects back on what's happened over the past few years. Uh, My involvement in uh, professionally dissenting against the anthrax vaccine program in the military over 20 years ago kind of shows those patterns, but significantly it also shows the intersection to the COVID vaccine mandates. The original anthrax vaccine program was found to be illegal by the federal courts. Uh, After the program was shut down by the federal courts, the government came up with the emergency use authorization law under the PREPT Act, the uh, Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. And so when they offered the anthrax vaccine as an EUA, emergency use authorized uh, drug product, Uh, They were basically saying that this uh, unapproved investigational medical product uh, could still be used by the Department of Defense, even though the federal courts had shut down the mandatory program. And the military uh, assured the government that the use of an EUA product, anthrax vaccine being the first ever EUA product, uh, would absolutely be no penalty, no punishment, no job loss, no loss of benefits. And they they put that in the Federal Register. Uh, links to the Federal Register are at hopingforjustice.org. Use the number four, hopingforjustice.org uh, on the COVID tab. So uh, it, it's very important not only to uh, to confirm that the government recognized uh, over 20 years ago that they had to make sure that EUA mandates uh, were uh, absolutely voluntary, meaning they couldn't mandate them. The government knew that. Um, Even with our current pandemic uh, planning, the government originally recognized and and stated that the shots would not be mandatory. The president said, quote, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it be mandatory. Dr. Anthony Fauci said, quote, I don't think you'll ever see a mandating of vaccine, particularly for the general public. The CDC under Walensky originally had uh, statements on their website saying, no, the federal government does not mandate or require vaccination for people. So the government 
had the same assessment that we have, they should not have mandated the vaccines. It was absolutely illegal uh, to do so under EUA law. And uh, John will actually talk a little bit more about that um, gargantuan fraud that was perpetuated by the government to create a ruse of a FDA approved product, which was actually never available. Um, so anyway, uh, the patterns are really important. What we've observed over the many, many years and all we've really ever wanted the government to do was be truthful, be honest. I think the American people are hungry for that truth and, and, and honesty at this point. And so here we are just a couple days after the federal government has announced that they're basically backing off all of their mandates. Uh, the OSHA mandate uh, was declared illegal by the Supreme Court. The federal contractor mandate and the federal em employee mandates have been uh, struck down by a variety of appellate level and district level federal courts. So mandates haven't gone well, but instead of framing it truthfully, unfortunately, the government um, has has maintained that the mandates did a good job and it and it uh, uh, eradicated vaccine uh, hesitancy and uh, unfortunately they're not telling the truth to the American people about the the root the core violations of the law uh, occurred the EUA law for our citizens says that they're supposed to have the option to accept or refuse vaccines. Any consequences cannot be se secondary consequences of job loss. The Department of Justice gave bad advice to the administration where they implied that that could be the case without looking at the context of consequences under the law, under 21 Code of Federal Regulations 50.25, where any consequences are strictly medical in nature for declining to be a part of a medical clinical trial. Under the Code of Federal Regulations, which specifically is titled human protection. Um, so the bottom line is the government got it wrong. As a result, they're having to back off of all of the mandates. And that's a good thing. We're kind of back to where we were a couple of years ago when they said they weren't going to mandate uh, the drug products. And uh, so, I, I, you know, hopefully the government's learned some lessons, but I think candor, being candid with the American people would be uh, wonderful in restoring the trust in our government versus continuing the gargantuan fraud of somehow the mandates were legal. Uh, and uh, in, in fact, they were not. Um, and when I come back to you after John um, and Jim have an opportunity to talk, uh, I'll go back to kind of, again, the beginning of this uh, from Wuhan to the National Biodefense Strategy, uh, the lack of governments, the lack of implementing those strategies, which all could have made a difference had they done it right. I'll pass it off to John at this point, if that's okay. Yes, sir. You know, thank you. And uh, thank you, Dr. Bleed, for having me on again. Um, you know, and what, what uh, you know, Colonel Renford, you know, has mentioned is uh, we, we've seen, uh, you know, play out both historically, you know, when you, I mean, I've read back, you know, and reflected back on the anthrax, you know, really debacle. So a lot of the, the similarities, a lot of the same playbooks, it's actually astonishing. I mean, you know, I read uh, Dale Saran's you know, book you know, just describing and cataloging you know everything that happened, and you pretty much could do a you know control you know find control replace you know the word anthrax with COVID nineteen you know, vaccines. It's very I mean it's remarkable how similar uh, both I mean both circumstances still are. So really the the main significance is I mean because first the FDA announced on I believe eighteen April of this year 
that the monovalent, uh, you know, uh, Pfizer and Moderna shots. So those were the original emergency use authorized. And the key to note here, if it's under emergency use authorized authorization, that means it's an unlicensed. And it's also you have every right to refuse an unlicensed, unapproved product. Um, and then later on, uh, you know, so so that came out. I, I mean, on 18 you know, April, you can find all these are letters are publicly available. The announcement came out. I mean, so and it was sold as well. You can still find the approved, uh, you know, shots, uh, you know, out there. So that's the justification for you know uh, taking these off. Uh, well, first thing to note is if the approved shots were in the market, then all the other emergency use authorized shots by 21 United States Code, section 360, you know, BBB-3, uh, that uh, deals with emergency use authorizations, should have come off the market. Because if you already have an approved alternative, then there is no reason to have emergency use authorized unapproved products. Um, and so the two products that were approved, you know, the uh, DOD is most familiar with the Comirnaty, uh, which you know was a BLA approved on in eight, or August of uh, 2022, and then later spike facts by Moderna, uh, January of 2023 or correction 2022 2021 of August is when we got the initial. But none of those products ever realistically made it in the market. I mean they I mean so which means the, the like every branch of government, including the DoD, was pushing the fact that these. The emergency use authorized products were interchangeable uh, with, uh, you know, with the emergency use authorized products, which is 100% legally fallacious because you know there are laws, uh, you know, governing the licensure and, and in order to be interchangeable under 42 United States Code Section 262, a licensed product has to be interchangeable or biosimilar. And there's an, like a 12 year time frame to which you have to determine the biosimilarity and interchangeability. So the simple point is and what a licensed unavailable product cannot be interchangeable with an unlicensed EUA product. That you have to have a licensed product interchangeable with another licensed product. That was like lot, you know, major line number two. The whole reason you know we did the interchangeable thing across the board was so that you could convince everyone that the FDA has approved it, the solution or the juice or the or, or this you know the the formulation was really the, the main thing that we had to approve. And all of this was really realistically to keep everything you know hidden behind liability immunities, uh, you know, uh, from 42 United <laughs> States Code Section 247 uh, Delta. Dash six delta. I mean, you can look all this stuff up, and when you see that, like any covered countermeasure, which is what these shots are, uh, I mean, the emergency use authorized shots. So the manufacturer, the government, and anyone in between that administers these products is shielded from any form of liability or any any scope of loss. And and, and I know um, we'll probably hear a little bit later on, especially when you you know uh, analyze like United Airlines. Private vendors and private companies are not in like the covered persons category. United States government and local governments and, and, and groups in between are. Why, do, why does that matter? Because if you understand how the liabilities work, you understand that you keep everyone pretty much away from any form of responsibility and the risk pointed right at the individual. So, uh, and the interesting fact is, in, uh, like a doctor, a leader, a public official can go from being the covered person to the individual in the blink of an eye, which means if you're if you suffer an injury, you have very little limited uh, legal or medical recourse to actually claim recompense. 
And the main thing uh, that governs this is the Countermeasure Injuries Compensation Program. Why does it, even knowing that that it may matter or that exists matter? Because it's next to impossible to actually get you know recovery for any sort of damage. And most of the people in implementing this knew this and hid behind it. And if you keep everything shielded behind that, it's an underfunded, poor program uh, that really is not designed to help those in need. Um, so if you keep everything, uh, you know, emergency use authorized products on the market, well, you you open yourself up. And and so um, so just we'll we'll hear a little bit later, but uh, private important point is private companies and private vendors are not considered legally considered a covered person, which means they are susceptible for you know for damage and loss, and that can come in multiple forms. Which if a lot of y'all noticed, uh, you know your local Costco or Walmart. Private vendors figured this out much sooner than everyone else because they realized very quickly their lawyers understood that they could be on, on the hook for even mask mandates because if an individual gets injured and they were wearing an EUA uh, mask, well, they're on the hook for that because they're not a covered person. So that's why that also you know, demonstrates the incentives and the intent to like push all this stuff because of those the moral hazards built with uh, the PREP Act liabilities. Um, so, I mean, the, the short, you know, short points are really we've never had the licensed product to begin with. And why? Because we kept it under the legal liabilities to protect all those except for the individuals. And then we just lied to all the individuals, coerced them, abused them, and then you know, basically you know, gave, made them feel as if they had limited to no options for their livelihoods and their careers. Uh, like my father-in-law actually is a New York teacher and lost his job as a result of all this for you know, you know, exercising his legal right to refuse. So it it had this unlike the anthrax aspect, which affected the military the most. This affected all of us across the globe. Um, so that's just a quick background on the significance of you know the the sham that has been the licensed shots that never actually existed. Well, and to your point about the private vendors and companies are not covered persons under the Prep Act immunity. That's why there can be successful lawsuits against employers for vaccine injury. And yet most of the public doesn't realize that. And that's why it's so important. I'd I'd like to hear from retired Colonel Zitlow about the United Airlines lawsuit, because that is a good example of suing a private employer. And we welcome Colonel Zitlow to the show today. Now, our CEO, Scott Kirby, uh, implemented a mandatory uh, a COVID-19 vaccination for 100% of our employees. That announcement was done a month ahead of the Biden administration and uh, President Biden in uh, September of 2021, who uh, implemented the, uh, the vaccine mandate you know, across the uh, nation. So uh, at that time, we were given uh, essentially just weeks to try to uh, either apply for a religious or a medical exemption. Actually, the deadline was went from uh, August 6th to August 31st of that month. So there was literally only three weeks to respond. Uh, we were uh, given a tremendous amount of information, uh, you know, that was that the vaccines were safe and effective, and uh, it became a somewhat of a very hostile environment. 
those that uh, had received the vaccine were pressuring uh, those that were un unvaccinated. And there was pressure from the, the company leadership, uh, the, the unions within the company uh, to uh, get the jab and push the number up toward uh, 100 percent as close as possible. So um, we our group was in the process of, uh, you know, standing up uh, uh to stand up against the uh, VAX mandate, uh, given all of our congressional, uh, you know, our our constitutional rights. Uh, you discussed uh, USC 21, 360 BBB, uh, which is included in our lawsuit. But there's three main points to our lawsuit. I'll keep it brief here. Uh, number one, it's religious discrimination under Title VII. Uh, the second area that's uh, very important to us is uh, we described the coercive uh, hostile work environment that we live through uh, to avoid uh, trying to take these uh, uh, gene therapy injections. Uh, it was almost a, as we describe in our lawsuit, a constructive discharge situation. And then the third uh, pillar of our lawsuit is uh, state actorship, where the United Airlines leadership worked in close coordination with the U.S. government and closely with the Biden administration to roll out these uh, illegal uh, gene therapy injections. So that's the three main points of our lawsuit. Again, we did cite uh, 21 uh, U.S. Code 360 BBB in our lawsuit. And we'll, we'll uh, can, I cannot go into the further details, but that's generally a description of what our lawsuit entails. Very good. I think that's extremely helpful. Was there also any aspect to the lawsuit that addresses the way in which there were incentive payments to private companies from the government. We have documented, we have whistleblowers on other lawsuits who have documented incentive payments. And in fact, Warner Mendenhall's law firm has sued um, on behalf of Smucker's employees because Smucker's was getting millions of dollars in government incentives as a federal contractor for pushing the vaccination above certain thresholds. Do you have any evidence that United Airlines was one of the companies being paid these incentives from the federal government? Uh, yes, in section three with the state actorship, uh, we cite uh, specific uh, SEC, I think it's Section K filings, where United Airlines received $7.5 billion in uh, monies uh, from, directly from the federal government, uh, basically ensuring you know, the, the viability of the airline uh, in advance of uh, their vaccine mandate. In addition, the U.S. government bought uh, uh, several hundred millions of shares of United stock essentially uh, having part ownership of United Airlines. So those are the two major factors that are facts uh, in our lawsuit. That's, that is something that has not been widespread in the media. And I'm sure most of the public has no idea that the government was taking ownership shares in United Airlines and paying seven and a half billion dollars. That, that's staggering. 
Yeah, the the value of United is less than fifteen billion. So the seven point five uh, billion installment is over half of the value of United Airlines. Wow, that is stunning. Has has there been any media attention to your lawsuit? This is this is just a staggering abuse. Uh, we have had some uh, attention through some sure media outlets. And, but, uh, but we're trying to get the word out. That's correct. Well, you know, we need to do more on this, on the whistleblower report. So if the attorneys and, and the lead plaintiffs, such as yourself, would like to do that, I think we really need to do more expose of these government incentive payments. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's clear, like I said, through the SEC filings and, uh, and multiple statements that uh, the, the U.S. government uh, had significant financial investment into United Airlines through this uh, COVID process. Is that partly why United Airlines was so much more draconian than the others? I, that's in my personal opinion, that is uh, correct. They, they, uh, again, there was a, uh, there were a lot of close coordination meetings. Uh, there was the financial uh, exchange, and we believe that that uh, directly contributed to uh, you know the Biden administration working closely with United Airlines and our CEO Scott Kirby being one of the first to come out and mandate 100% employee uh, uh, uptake of the vaccine versus. Uh, other airlines that, you know, didn't go quite to that extent. So uh, United Airlines and Scott Kirby were kind of a lead in the uh, airline industry to try to make that happen. They loaded, it would be as bad in my mind as loading a gun and pointing it at the employees. In terms of what we knew in 2020 and early 2021 was potential damage from these gene therapy shots with the lipid nanoparticle toxicity to the brain and the heart and lungs and the spike protein toxicity. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of us uh, employees, we did, we listened to uh, a lot of medical professionals. Uh, you know, I've even gotten some medical uh, professionals in my extended family and we did our research, I mean, early and we, we determined just like the rest of you have, that there may be some potential harm uh, in these, uh, you know, these Operation Warp Speed quickly developed products. And, uh, you know, the number one thing we did, and I'll just extend my comments here, and when we did our 2007 planning, it was all about preventing transmission of a virus. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, you do in a pandemic is you try to limit the spread of the virus. Uh, there was very little discussion in, you know, transmission prevention early on. And, you know, we went from mandatory masks everywhere in society to, uh, you know, not having any approved early treatment protocols or antivirals. And then we came up with these quickly accelerated gene therapy injections, and that was supposed to solve everything. And every everyone from President Biden on down in the early stages was saying this, these injections were going to prevent transmission. Now, later on, they backed off from saying that, but that was what they were saying. So 
a lot of us employees, we figured out early on, these things were likely not going to work and could harm us. So we stood up and, and refused to take these injections. And bravo to you, because this was something that medically we were saying from very early on. And the fact that I, in the fall of 2020, I, my patients were asking me about the vaccines and I kept saying, we don't ever develop vaccines that fast. There's something wrong here and we don't have safety data. Get your early treatment medicines in place. I'll help you with that. And that we'll come back to that in the second half. But I really appreciate your being clear about what was going on at United Airlines that created such a devastatingly toxic and hostile workplace. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report military segment and discussing the gargantuan fraud on the American people and continued hoodwinking of the American people with what the Biden administration's current posturing is doing. We'll be right back after the break. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org, and listen to our whistleblower reports every day, Monday through Friday, at thewhistleblowerreport.org and here on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. This message is from the Truth For Health Foundation. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Sigloff, a family medicine physician and a major in the U.S. Army. The following are only my opinions. 
Service members are being coerced to participate in medical experimentation, with over 7,500 service members being discharged for refusing to participate. Many of them have lost their retirement and medical benefits. There are allegations that the DOD is committing medical fraud, violating the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and violating the constitutional rights of service members. Strong men and women stand ready to defend so that you can sleep peacefully through the night. Now we must stand watch over the military so they can sleep peacefully through the night. Please get involved to help protect the military. This message brought to you by the Truth For Health Foundation. For more information, please visit truthforhealth.org. That is truthforhealth.org. Truth, the word for, health.org. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report military segment. This is Dr. Lee for America with our three experienced military veterans and one currently serving military service member with what has gone on with this fraud perpetrated on the American people regarding the COVID-19 shots and the mandates that were clear violations of multiple federal laws and our U.S. Constitution. I want to go back to something that both Colonel Cheek said and Colonel Zitlow said as well. When the EUA product is approved to be used under the PREP Act, it can only be approved for emergency use authorization if there is no existing alternative that is licensed. That, America, is the reason that doctors were persecuted and censored and threatened with losing their license for prescribing hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, corticosteroids, and other already approved FDA medications that could just as easily have treated the viral illness. And in fact, had a safety record that went back in the case of hydroxychloroquine 65 years. So we were lied to about the fact that there were no other treatments. The only reason that that was perpetrated on the public was to push everyone into the vice of the experimental gene therapy shot. There were treatments available. I treated my own patients and they all survived with early treatment combination therapy. No one went in the hospital and no one died. Not the case for those who went in the hospital and were prevented early treatment and not the case of what's happening to people with devastating vaccine injuries. So I do think that's important to remind everyone. Colonel Zitlow, you have been involved in the military as a strategic pandemic planner. What, just briefly, and we're going to have you back to do a whole, whole program on this because it's, it's huge what was done. Tell our public, you and Colonel Remfer and Colonel Cheek all know what the normal pandemic response should have been had been planned for decades. We knew what to do. Tell us what really happened there. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll just cover this briefly because we can go into it more next week. But uh, after 9-11, there was uh, an effort to, uh, you know, confront uh, weapons of mass destruction, including biological uh, agents or, or uh, you know, viruses and those sorts of things. Uh, so there was more of a uh, post-bioterrorism uh, concern. Uh, in 2005, uh, 
the uh, George W. Bush 43 administration uh, came up with a, a national strategy for pandemic influenza. So there was going to be the first time there was going to be a, a large uh, response, you know, government-wide response uh, to include, uh, you know, preparing for a pandemic. 2006, they rolled out a large implementation plan. Uh, in that implementation plan, just briefly, uh, the initial response was to have 75 million antiviral doses and 20 million uh, vaccines ready to cover a potential for 25% of the uh, U.S. population being infected with uh, pandemic influenza. That, and then vaccines would be developed over a, a series of months to years through the standard FDA approval process. Uh, in 2007, I led, uh, I was tasked uh, to develop the uh, DOD uh, Global Pandemic Influenza Plan. This would be the second ever global plan ever written after the global war on terror plan by uh, U.S. CENTCOM. I can discuss more of that later, but uh, we looked at, uh, you know, the work that, uh, you know, Colonel Renfer had done, uh, what previous decades of uh, experience in pandemic planning, decades of public health information, uh, guidance from uh, the three-letter uh, federal agencies, uh, our, our Pentagon, and of course, we made everybody read the uh, great uh, influenza book about the 1918 um, uh, you know, flu uh, pandemic, so that everyone had the background to build uh, this plan. So we built a multi-phased 400-page, it is a classified plan, on how to keep the U.S. military operating through a global uh, influenza pandemic plan. Following that uh, and that production, we were lauded by the uh, Secretary of Defense at that time uh, for a well-written pandemic plan that included antivirals and eventually uh, some pan uh, vaccines, uh, but it was a multi-phased approach, just like we do joint operations in the military. We don't just rely on one branch of the service. We use all kinds of tools to make sure we could respond. In 2009, 2010, briefly, uh, I was uh, promoted to colonel and moved up to the NORAD Northcom Command Center. And at that point, we executed the plan that I helped write. And we, we did the tracking of the H1N1 pandemic. We did not mandate any masks. We did not mandate any vaccine injections. And uh, we did make it through that operation. Uh, and we felt that that was a success of our plan, showing that our plan worked uh, multi-faceted. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. We can go into more next week. Well, that that is very helpful. And what we saw, twofold, I'll share from a physician experience, we had President Trump, because I was working closely with Senator Ron Johnson in early April 2020, and they, President Trump, had already obtained 76 million doses of hydroxychloroquine donated by pharmaceutical companies to the national stockpile. And the reason Senator Johnson called me, he heard an editor, I mean, an interview I did in Milwaukee in March saying that doctors were not being allowed to prescribe hydroxychloroquine 
and I was documenting what was going on medically. And he called me out of the blue and said, what's going on? We have worked hard to get 76 million doses in the national stockpile, exactly as you just said, was planned in the national pandemic plan that you helped write. So that was done by March 2020. We had those doses there. They sat in the stockpile and rotted because the powers that be under Fauci were preventing access to those medicines. And my medical organization that I've been a member of for 28 years, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, sued the FDA to get the national stockpile medicines release, and the suit was dismissed. So the pandemic plan was attempted by people under the Trump administration, Peter Navarro, I know Dr. Stephen Hatfield was involved, AAPS, many of us were working behind the scenes to get that disseminated to the public. So what they ultimately did, and particularly intensified under the Biden administration, was to do exactly the opposite of everything that you had planned to cause the worst, the more, dam- more damage. And Colonel Cheek, you want to comment on about the use of remdesivir? <clears throat> yes, I mean, just an important note. I mean, you brought up like, you know, so just me being the, the kind of the nerd researcher that I am, you know, so hydroxychloroquine, you know, was actually the FDA actually did grant an emergency use authorized, uh, you know, emergency use authorization for the use because it's a licensed product, but then it's the second category for an unapproved use. Um, however, they but only in the hospital, Correct. they know they specifically limited it. This was Rick Bright specifically issued. I read that document in end of March, March 28th, 2020. And he specifically limited it to very sick patients end stage disease in the hospital when he knew it would not work. Well, and then the FDA revoked that same emergency use authorization in June of 2020. So, I mean, exactly right. They put it on, took it off, and then that left the only alternative treatment also at the time under emergency use authorization and also a covered countermeasure, uh, you know, remdesivir. So, I mean, which was designed, I believe, to combat uh, Ebola, if I'm familiar with a little bit of medical history. No, Um, it failed in the Ebola trials. It had over 53% mortality. They had to take it out of the Ebola trials. There were four drugs in those Ebola trials. Remdesivir was so toxic and caused so many deaths they stopped using it in the clinical trial for Ebola and kept the other three drugs as part of the clinical trial. And, and just, you know, and again, the kind of the sickening part is, you know, by granting the emergency use authorization and then placing the, the liability immunity on remdesivir, that incentivizes a hospital to use a treatment that's got full liability immunity, as well as the administering hospital and anyone in the chain of custody up until the user um, so that's why it's difficult to sue a hospital or the manufacturer or even you know the government because you were using a covered countermeasure. 
I mean, it's it, it's again, it's the legal aspect of the moral hazards, you know, created, and also the incentives, the incentives that are resulting for using something that nobody's liable for. I mean, that that's the disgusting part to me. Well, exactly right, and I would add to that that, in my opinion, it's evil to restrict treatment to a drug you know was already killing people. Colonel Remfer, you have some thoughts about the National Biodefense Strategy and the failure to implement it. Yes, Dr. Lee. Um, you know, and and just as a prelude to that, I, I think your listeners probably should be intellectually curious as to why um, uh, current and former military officers are speaking out um, differently uh, compared to what our government is saying. And it goes back to our original training, you know, our our codes of conduct, core values, oath of office, honor codes, all, you know, challenge us to make sure that we do no harm and that we only follow legal orders. So that's kind of why we're all here and why, you know, we, we want the process to be <clears throat> something that is uh, coherent and, and cogent. And so part of uh, Jim's and my analysis uh, over the um, uh, preceding months has been to look at, um, you know, some of the national biodefense strategies. And the very first one was actually written by the previous administration in 2018. And they specifically had a governance section on there that if a bio incident happens, all the stakeholders are supposed to be brought to the table and involved. And it's supposed to be a, a, a very collaborative type um, operation. Um, I think what you found with the pandemic response was it ended up being a, a stovepiped and siloed type uh, operation, uh, which ends up being problematic because they made bad assumptions. And so if we really rewind this back to the beginning of the pandemic, it actually resembles the anthrax letter attacks, which, uh, you know, if you go back to 2001, the anthrax vaccine program was about to be canceled. Uh, uh, later, the federal courts found it to be illegal. But instead of canceling the anthrax vaccine program, everybody was scared by the bio incident that occurred in September and October of 2001 with the anthrax letter attacks. It was a bio incident. It literally, that bio incident literally became the foundation of why the previous administration came up with the first ever national biodefense strategy. And they wanted governance, they wanted all these stakeholders to be involved, but it, as implemented, they didn't do that. And then they actually rewrote uh, in 2022 the National Biodefense Strategy, and they took out the government's section, governance section in, in order to essentially make what they did mirror or uh, match what their response was. And, and that was problematic because if you if you look at the origins of the pandemic, in contrast to uh, government officials trying to make it out as though uh, it, it was not a lab leak. It appears Department of Energy, FBI, um, former um, uh, Director of National Intelligence, uh, Senate uh, Select Committee on COVID Origins, they're all agreeing, hey, it was, it, the preponderance of evidence shows that it was most likely a, a lab leak. You know what that is? That's a bio incident. That means that the national biodefense strategy should have been implemented, but instead they didn't. And instead they edited it, changed it, took out the governance uh, section. So 
you know, from an academic inquiry perspective, it's important to go back and look at, at what we did wrong. You know, uh, the, the academics would call that the gap analysis. That's the gap, you know, instead of properly framing this from the beginning as a, as a, as a bio incident and implementing the national biodefense strategy in a comprehensive manner, as Jim has talked about the resiliency, no mandates, um, you know, include therapeutics. They didn't do any of that. Instead, uh, people uh, collaborated, um, uh, colluded, and and published the proximal origins paper and tried to make it look like anybody who was saying anything, uh, you know, about a lab leak were conspiracy theorists. Today, it, it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It's actually the prevailing theory. So it's important we go back and look at the gaps. It's important we go back and uh, and and look at whether or not uh, a lot of these uh, government initiatives and mandates should have been um, done in the first place. I think they've been a, uh, a gargantuan failure in addition to being based on a gargantuan fraud. The mandates have absolutely collapsed and hopefully Americans in the future will look at these gaps, will look at this history and will make sure that uh, the next time around they do it properly and implement the national biodefense strategy as originally written with governance. I think we could look at the deadly gap that cost lives and call it what it is because we are looking at over 300,000 American deaths that were needless deaths as a result of denial of early treatment, forcing people into remdesivir toxicity and death, and then the damages from the COVID shots. So I think your, your point about the gap, Colonel Remfer, is very well taken. And I'm just adding the fact that as a physician, I see it as a deadly one. And it was a deadly deception as well, because when they refused to acknowledge the lab leak and trigger the biodefense strategy, they knew what they were doing. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with you there. <laughs> They, you know, we had, we, as, we, as we have been discussing, we had, we've had decades of planning and, and prior uh, pandemic history to go with. And we know it's not just based on just one size fits all response of uh, injections or vaccines or whatever they are, but you, you use multiple tools. I mean, you use a medical, uh, medical type of countermeasures, the term that is used. Well, countermeasures can be not just vaccines, but it certainly can be, you know, uh, it can be just trying to prevent uh, transmission. Uh, back in our era, when we wrote our plan, uh, we used one yard, which was three feet. Somehow six feet became, you know, the, the norm when we're not even sure where that came from. But the, but the bottom line is you use multiple tools and it's not just focused on on one solution. And they it sounds like based they had 76 million doses in the strategic national stockpile that would have readily been able to uh, possibly help save thousands or tens of thousands or most of those 300,000 uh, people that died because that was a, a type of medical countermeasure that was out there and available and just was not utilized. Exactly. And doctors knew how to use it. I mean, we've been treating viral illnesses our whole careers. And so it didn't take a lot of effort to find. I mean, I, it took me five minutes to find the 2005 article that Fauci's Journal of Virology published showing 
that chloroquine and the sister drug, hydroxychloroquine, had potent antiviral effectiveness against SARS-CoV-1 virus, which was studied with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine in 2002 and 2003 with the first SARS-CoV-1 outbreak. And they share almost 80% of the same genome. And these were drugs that have been used worldwide safely for 65 years. So you're right. We had all of that available and doctors knew how to use it. We were, I mean, they tried to suppress us. I, I didn't take too, too kindly to politicians telling me what I could do to treat my patients and save lives. So I went ahead and treated what I needed to do to help save lives. Colonel Renfer, you were going to comment on something. You know, uh, the the idea that we're speaking out and trying to um, help our government um, and, and our military um, to do things like this, uh, not only properly in the past, but also properly in the future. Um, I, I think it's interesting because there are some uh, some good examples of people in the government had had governance actually worked uh, and had people been listened to um, folks like FDA's uh, Center for Biologic Evaluation Research, uh, Dr. Marion Gruber had actually advised the government, hey, you can't do this. Uh, you can't do mandates because there's there's no um, uh, approved vaccine. Um, and unfortunately, um, they didn't listen to her. And, and so that's, I think those are the um, kinds of examples that the government, when they reflect and resurvey their judgments on uh, COVID um, pandemic policy, I think they need to go back and, and look at the things that were missed or the people that weren't listened to. And instead, uh, Dr. Gruber was, you know, either resigned or was forced out, uh, but wasn't willing to go along with the gargantuan fraud. And so um, I think it's, it's really important to reflect on some of those examples. You're exactly right. And in the time we have left, closing comments from each of you, and then I'll wrap up and we'll have you back, especially Colonel Zitlow. I really do want to have more from the United Airlines pilots. I want to have them have a chance to speak. And I'd like to hear more about the lawsuit and more about the pandemic preparedness plan that you personally were involved in. So we will follow up with that. Listeners, stay tuned. You'll hear more on all of those topics. Closing thoughts. Ma'am, I'll, I'll go ahead and go. I mean, the bottom line for everyone is, uh, I mean, there were absolutely no licensed products in the market, you know, for the purpose of treatment, prevention, diagnosis, or curing, you know, COVID-19. So this applies to masks. I mean, all there are no licensed masks for any sort of, you know, any sort of treatment whatsoever. I mean, that's why fighting mask mandates became a big focal point. My wife and I, uh, you know, at military hospitals and civilian hospitals. I mean, there's everyone has a fundamental right to refuse an unlicensed medical product. The test kits, all of our policies have been based on unlicensed test kits, uh, you know, with unlicensed processes. And if you read the emergency use authorization letters for each, I mean, you'll find that masks and test kits had good manufacturing practices waived, that test kits, you know, can't really affirm a negative result. So negative does not really mean a negative result. Positive doesn't mean or doesn't rule out a positive result. And these are the products that had good manufacturing practices waived. And again, importantly, are unlicensed for their purpose of diagnosis. And then that gets to the shots. I mean, all the shots that were available in the market were under emergency use authorizations or unlicensed for their uh, their medical purpose of prevention. 
And you, that's why we have an inherent right to, you know, one, to be informed of the right to accept or refuse, two, the, the inherent right to be told of the risks, uh, you know, the medical risks of not taking and also the long-term knowns and unknowns, and as well as the liabilities. What happens if I do suffer an injury? At no point ever were any, uh, any of these things discussed with uh, like the American public, the patients, military members, civilians. I mean, it, it's one of the biggest, you know, like to me, cataclysmic failures of ba being a basic administrator and upholding the oath of office of any respective government servant. You're exactly right. And that was a terrific summary. Thank you. We'll have all of you back to talk more about these issues, the false oaths of office that we've discovered for most of the Biden administration officials, the failure of military leaders to carry out their oath. There's so much to talk about. I want to thank all of you for your dedicated service to the country in the military and your continuing fight for what is right under the law and before God. And I just really appreciate all of you being here. Colonel Remfer, especially thank you and Colonel Cheek for being on our advisory board so that Truth for Health Foundation can be an advocate for the abuses that our military service members are being subjected to. And Colonel Sitlow, we, we want to help support the United Pilots as well. So come join our Military Advisory Council and be a conduit back to the United people as well. God bless you all. And America, stand against the tyranny. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And God will not hold us guiltless. So we all have to do our part as our three courageous retired and current military service members have illustrated today. This is Dr. Lee for America. We'll be back again tomorrow with another whistleblower report. Check our website, www.truthforhealth.org. Download our vaccine injury treatment guide if you've been injured by the shot and file a citizen's vaccine injury treatment report. We'll be back tomorrow. May God bless all of us in a sweet fight to preserve one nation under God with liberty and justice for all.